This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's been a long week, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. It's Friday night, and you know what that means, a trip to the video store. As you walk in, you are greeted with bustling crowds and movie lovers browsing the shelves, trying to choose the perfect movie. As you walk through the aisles and shelves of video, so many possibilities present themselves. Will you go with one of your standby favorites or try something new? And if you play your cards right, maybe you'll be allowed to rent a video game. A general buzz of excitement and ambiance fills the store as everyone plans out their weekend entertainment. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consume, and connected. And today, I take you back to the place that changed how we consume media, the machine that made it all possible, and how both of these almost never happened. This is the story of the golden age of video stores. The story of the golden age of video stores starts with the machine that made it all possible, the video cassette recorder or VCR. The VCR goes back all the way to the 1950s when the Ampax Corporation created the VRX-1000. Never initially intended for television, networks soon saw a practical application for this incredibly complex and expensive machine. It meant networks could record shows on film to be broadcast later. It took years, but the seeds of the first commercial VCR were planted. In the late 60s, in Japan, Sony created the U-Matic, the first video cassette recording format. In the early 70s, Philips also came out with their version of what we now dubbed the video cassette recorder or VCR. Also in the 70s, Sony created a specific format they dubbed Beta. The Sony Betamax. Sony believed the video cassette recorder should follow one standard their standard. Instead of letting Sony dictate the market, in 1976, technology company JVC developed its own format, the Video Home System, or VHS. And just as this was happening, something incredibly groundbreaking is happening over in Germany. We'll get back to this in a bit. Meanwhile, a format war is brewing between Beta and VHS. I have a previous episode that covers the full story of the VCR format wars, but the quick story is that Beta promoted the fact they were higher quality, while VHS would draw in more consumers because their machines were cheaper. The tapes were interchangeable with other manufacturers' VHS machines, and most importantly, VHS had a higher recording capacity. VHS, the four-hour system from Panasonic. At the end of the 70s and going into the 80s, a VCR was incredibly expensive and not common in most homes. It would take some years until the prices of VCRs came down, and by that point, VHS was winning the format war. But no matter the format, the VCR was incredible technology. Now, for the first time ever in a home, you could record your favorite programs, 
and watch them back whenever you wanted. This means nothing to us today, but this was an astonishing advancement at the time. The VCR also meant you could own movies and again, watch them whenever you wanted in the comfort of your own home. Another astounding game changer. But this is where the story gets interesting. The VCR is about to change the entire film industry and transform the way movies are consumed and distributed. The VCR is about to take us into the golden age of video stores. And it almost never happened. Because if Hollywood had its way, the VCR would have been banned. And the entertainment landscape could have looked drastically different. Before VHS was to catch on, Sony ruled the VCR landscape with their Betamax machines. And the new technology did not sit well with the entertainment industry. Hollywood and TV studios hated the idea of the public being able to record TV shows and movies. In the late 70s, some major Hollywood studios sued Sony's American base of operations. Their reason behind the suit? Sony machines allowed users to record copyrighted material. Recording a network presentation of, say, The Wizard of Oz to watch later was to the studios copyright infringement. The courts ruled in favor of Sony. Case closed? Not quite yet. In 1981, the studios appealed to the Ninth Circuit Court, which reversed the decision. The courts agreed that by manufacturing and selling these machines, Sony was contributing to copyright infringement. To the big entertainment companies, the only reason you would own a VCR was to copy movies and TV shows, which technically is true, as rental stores as we know them don't really exist yet. By creating this technology, Sony should have to pay damages to the film and television industry. The suit carried on for years, and during that time, the VHS was slowly emerging. As shared in a 2013 TechCrunch article, the studios wanted legal restrictions on the VCR. We were actually looking at the potential ban of the VCR. Now, it's early 1983 and Sony appealed the ruling, taking it all the way to the Supreme Court. Just like when any new technology is released, people struggle to understand the place it will have in our lives. There always seems to be the fear that new technology will lead to disruption and a negative societal impact. This goes back to the printing press, radio, television, records, Walkmans, the internet, Napster, and the VCR was no different. Studios and networks worried that with the ability to record their content, users would be able to sell their tapes. The case has been dragging on since 1978, and it's now five years later. And the problem is, the VCR has grown rapidly in popularity. Prices were coming down and more people were able to afford them. Finally, in January 1984, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four in favor of Sony in what's been dubbed the Betamax case. It was thought that most broadcasters didn't care if their material was recorded for home use. But the fact that the VCR survived and we entered a new era of home video may have come down to the most unlikely of people, Mr. Rogers. Fred Rogers had no problem with people recording Mr. Rogers' neighborhood to watch at a later time and actually testified in court in support of Sony. He said the ability to record programs made it more convenient for people to watch shows when it served them best. 
Ultimately, the VCR helped to make Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood seen more, and this is the approach networks and studios should take. The testimony of the beloved children's entertainer is considered a big reason why the court ruled in favor of Sony. It's weird to think of, but you may have never had a collection of home movies or set foot in a blockbuster video on a Friday night without him. Thanks to Mr. Rogers and the Betamax case, the VCR wasn't going anywhere. As we approach the midpoint of the 80s, and with nothing holding the tech companies back, the VCR becomes much more commonplace in society. But how did the video stores arrive on the scene? And despite the Betamax case, how did the studios still try to handcuff them? In Castle, Germany, right around the time when Sony released their first machines in North America, one of the first video stores ever opened. Considered the world's first video rental shop, Video Film Shop was opened by Eckhard Baum. Baum started by lending out Super 8 movies to friends and thought this could be a good business idea. As new video formats emerged, Baum began to include them. And this video store was a great place for fellow movie fans to meet up and discuss their favorites. Over here in North America, while the studios were about to begin their lawsuit against Sony, something interesting was also happening in Michigan, a company called Magnetic Video Corporation. By special arrangement with 20th Century Fox, Magnetic Video Corporation is proud to offer the following major motion picture on video cassette. Started by Andre Blay, the special arrangement for Magnetic Video allowed him to license 50 of Fox's movies that existed pre-1973. He then started Video Club of America, which offered something that would seem familiar in a few decades. Members could pay a $9 monthly membership fee to receive movies by mail. When it comes to a good time, $9 a week doesn't go very far. Well, Video Club of America is changing all that. When you join this totally new concept in Video Club memberships, you'll get your own video cassette recorder, not a rental. You own it. You get your choice of two movies every week for a full year, $200 in bonus discount coupons and more, all for just $9 a week. With Video Club of America, you can enjoy all the fun of the video generation. Members still had to pay upwards of $50 for the rental, but this unique service was one of the few ways to get movies. Going into the 80s, even though VCRs were not commonplace, they still had a small but devoted audience. If you had what today is the equivalent of about $6,000 to spend on a VCR, you probably had the money to spend on the movies to make use of them. Like with any new video format, the early adopters are the hardcore movie lovers. But if you made a significant investment in a VCR, what would you watch on it? There weren't exactly a lot of movies even available. And where would you even get them? This is where Video Club of America found a specific niche. Video Club of America started with 20th Century Fox's movies and then expanded, making deals with United Artists, ABC Video Enterprises, and New Line Cinema. Video Club of America was great, but what if you didn't want to go through the arduous process of filling out forms, waiting for delivery, and then having to ship movies back? A solution would soon present itself. Here in North America, just before the studios first went after Sony, something unique opened up in Los Angeles, California. George Atkinson, a former stand-in and stunt double, owned a company called Home Theater Systems. Like Eckhard Baum in Germany, 
Atkinson rented out Super 8 movies and projectors. Atkinson came across Magnetic Home Video and got, quote, a crazy idea. He was dealing with movie lovers, and if they were renting out Super 8 equipment, would they maybe be interested in videotapes? These people were into the latest and greatest tech and probably owned a newfangled video cassette recorder. A 2005 LA Times article shares that Atkinson, without any videotapes yet, ran an ad in the Times to see if there was a market for videotapes. The simple ad entitled Video for Rent allowed readers to fill out a coupon to mail in. In less than a week, he received over a thousand coupons. Clearly, there was a market for videotapes. And since he already had a physical store, maybe he could just keep them there to rent out. Instead of doing everything by mail, people could just come in and rent them. But Atkinson needed inventory. So, with an enormous $10,000 loan, Atkinson bought a VHS and beta copy of every movie magnetic video had. Now, with the videotapes in hand, he took out a new ad, a simple one-inch ad with the heading Video Cassette Rentals. This time, the ad contained his phone number. The ad had his phone, quote, lighting up like a Christmas tree. At first, Atkinson's new store was called Video Cassette Rentals, but in 1982 was renamed to the Video Station, the very first North American video rental store. Just like Video Club of America, the video station charged an annual membership fee, and movies cost $10 a day. Remember, this is the early 80s, so that's over $30 in today's money. The video crowd, though, was a well-off community and was more inclined to want to own the movies. But Atkinson knew the future in this business, if there was a future at all, was in rentals. He would be right. As the video store was emerging, Video Club of America was still going strong. Not only did they have beta and VHS cassettes, but movies on a still relatively new format called Laserdisc. And I have a previous episode all about this groundbreaking technology if you want to go back and check that out too. Even though video and the concept of owning and renting movies in the early 80s was a niche market, the studios still didn't like what they were seeing. At first, they weren't all that concerned with rentals as it didn't seem like a viable business. In that LA Times article, Atkinson saw the studios as seeing the consumer as buyers and not renters. But the studios still didn't like the idea of people buying. But why was this? Why would a studio want to turn down the chance to sell a VHS copy of one of their movies? Theatrical re-releases. In the early 80s, with VCRs yet to be in every household, studios made their money by re-releasing big films multiple times. It could be years and years until a feature film made it to network TV. And if you wanted to see E.T. or Back to the Future again, you could the next time it was re-released in theaters. Giving people the option to buy a feature film on videotape would cut into that re-release revenue. For the studios, the money was in the theaters, not in videotapes. This is why the first movies released on beta and VHS were so expensive, costing upwards of $80 to $100. Convert this for today, and you're in the $200 territory. The sky-high pricing was to offset any lost money from a theatrical re-release. 
but the very thing Hollywood tried to prevent would end up making them billions of dollars. Atkinson, unlike the studios, could see where everything was heading with rentals. If the price of VCRs came down, which eventually happens with all new technology, there could be more demand for rentals for the average consumer. Atkinson foresaw a day when there weren't just 50 movie titles available, but thousands. Atkinson's gamble on video rental was paying off as Video Station began to franchise. Atkinson was right. People wanted to rent movies. By 1982, there were upwards of 20,000 video rental stores. Crossing into the second half of the 80s, the cost of the VCR did indeed go down. By 1984, the VCR, even though still relatively expensive, was starting to boom, with upwards of 7 million units sold. Now, more and more people wanted to make as much use out of their new entertainment machines as they could. And this was becoming possible thanks to these new video rental stores popping up. Instead of hoping a network ran what was probably a heavily edited version of The Godfather, you could now go to a video store, take it home, and watch it whenever you wanted. You could even pause to go to the bathroom instead of the mad scramble during a commercial. Kids, you have no idea how much this feature changed our lives. It was still a few years until the big-name video stores began to spring up, so this new era of video rental store was happening thanks to independently run stores. And these stores were catching on quickly. By 1984, with the landmark Betamax case and no restrictions, sales of machines really started to explode. Many video stores would even rent out VCRs for those who weren't ready to take the plunge on the machines. I remember my family doing this, and I still remember to this day the very first videotape I ever watched in my home, Superman 2. I actually got to look through a bunch of movies and pick it out myself. The public, like myself, was discovering how great this whole rental thing really was. Video rental was about to take over the entire retail landscape, including the opening of one store that took the industry to a whole new level. Everything 80s will return after these messages. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A 1984 New York Times article shares that for that last year, 150 million videocassette rental transactions took place. This was bringing in a cool three quarters of a billion dollars. Adjusted for inflation, this is in the ballpark of 2.1 billion. 
And this was just the beginning. Industry insiders expected rentals and sales to more than double as we reached the halfway point of the 80s. As video rental stores start to spread, the studios still don't like them. They already didn't like the sales of the tapes cutting into their bottom line, but the rental market was growing rapidly, and they took issue with this. Depending on where you lived, some video stores had rooms where families and friends who may not have had a VCR could watch rented movies. The video store was quickly becoming a part of the neighborhood. They were becoming social hangouts. The big studios didn't like this and considered it a violation of federal copyright law. Even though they had lost the case against Sony and the VCR, the studios wanted a piece of the growing rental market. The motion picture industry still saw the whole thing as a copyright issue. Not only did they still want a user fee added to the sales of tapes and VCRs, but also, quote, legislation that would require the copyright holder's permission before a cassette could be rented, unquote. Basically, they wanted royalties on the rental of their material. But if the studios could have had it their way, there wouldn't have been rentals or video stores of any kind. Before the Betamax case was decided, new legislation was reintroduced, the Consumer Video Sales Rental Act of 1983. As shared in the 2013 TechCrunch article, this would have either shut down the rental market or allowed the content industry to, quote, charge exorbitant fees by making it a crime to rent out movies purchased commercially, unquote. With no restrictions on the VCR after the 1984 ruling, video rental clearly boomed. With both the VCR and video stores now growing like wildfire, it honestly would have been impossible to stop it. But again, the very thing the major studios tried to stop ended up making them billions upon billions of dollars. Just two years after this legal mess, sales of videotapes and rentals eclipsed box office revenue. And when I say video stores grew like wildfire, I really mean wildfire. Going into the second half of the 80s, you could rent movies seemingly anywhere. 7-Elevens, gas stations, even grocery stores. Here in Canada, you could even walk into an Eaton's or Canadian Tire and leave with a video rental. A trip out for a snow shovel could have you walking out with a copy of The Princess Bride. By 1986, there were 40,000 places that carried videos. As reported in the New York Times, by 1988, there were 25,000 video stores and 45,000 other outlets where you could rent tapes. And something else was happening with all these new stores and rentals. The rapid growth of video rental stores created a whole new culture. Local video stores became pop cultural hubs. The video store is where you found out about new movies and connected with like-minded people. You paid your monthly membership fee and had your membership card, which was like your ticket into a new world of entertainment. And there was one entity that was like the gatekeeper to all video entertainment, the video store clerk. Video store staff were like rulers of the land with deep insight and movie knowledge you couldn't find anywhere else. There was no internet or social media. Video store clerks were our movie gurus. They were real-life versions of IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes rolled into one. If you didn't know the name of a movie but could only describe it in a few words or sentences, they instantly knew what it was. 
They told you to steer clear of certain movies and recommended ones that cater to your interests. You may have had your own go-to video store clerk, the one who knew your tastes and could direct you towards movies you never knew existed. Whether it was a gene pick on the shelf or a long discussion with your trusted advisor, this is where you discovered new favorites. Video store clerks had the coolest job in the world and got paid to watch movies all day. But they knew these movies intricately with a deep insight and knowledge into our favorites. They were the ones that pointed out that one of the asteroids in The Empire Strikes Back was actually a potato. They were the ones that knew that Harrison Ford improvised shooting his attacker in the Raiders of the Lost Ark because he was too sick to film anything else. These neighborhood video stores became hubs for movie lovers. It's where we found out about deep cuts and other genres and films in those genres you may have never heard about. And then there was one store that took video stores to a whole new level. A store that would change the world of entertainment forever. I've never seen 10,000 tapes in one store. There's so much kid stuff. And I can keep them for three evenings. Now this is a video store. Ordinary video stores don't even come close to Blockbuster Video. You've just got to see it to know what we mean. Wow. 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 1985 was a very big year for movies. It gave us all-time classics like The Goonies, The Breakfast Club, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and Back to the Future. It also gave us one of the biggest creations of not only home video, but the entire entertainment industry, Blockbuster Video. On October 19, 1985, the very first Blockbuster opened in Dallas, Texas. Founded by David Cook, he saw the potential in home video rental, but he wanted to take a new approach. Most video stores were, of course, smaller and independently run. He wanted to do something bigger and better. The first location had 8,000 tapes. They also introduced something pretty unique for the time, a computerized checkout process. That first location did very well, and three more stores were added that year. Blockbuster was sold in 1987, where it rapidly expanded. With its distinct blue and yellow branding, Blockbuster locations quickly dotted the landscape. We'll catch back up with Blockbuster in a minute. Here in Canada, we had our own national video store coming on the scene. Jumbo Video. Jumbo, hey, Jumbo Founded by Jim Gormley in 1987, the first Jumbo Video opened in Guelph, Ontario. At its peak, there were 100 Jumbo Video locations. Even though it was a chain, it still felt like a neighborhood video store. They were spacious and had a ton of titles. And best of all, free popcorn. Canadians who grew up in the 80s with Jumbo Video will know how amazing this was. For my family, it was a weekend tradition to head to Jumbo Video. Even if you didn't get anything, it was all about the experience. You walked in and were greeted by the smell of fresh popcorn. You browsed the shelves while carrying that free popcorn that you swear tasted better than any popcorn you'd ever had. But you inevitably would leave with rentals and probably a video game as this was one of the best locations to rent one. But despite the bigger name retail rental stores and giant video barns coming on the scene, much of our rental experience still happened 
at the neighborhood level in the smaller independent video stores. My small neighborhood place was called Tropical Video. It was within walking distance of my house. They had a specific section just for pro wrestling tapes. They had a family section, a kid section, science fiction, action adventure, horror, and comedy, all laid out in a way that every turn was a new discovery. This was the place my family first rented Back to the Future. It's where I ran to when I found out they finally had WrestleMania 3, so I could actually see Hulk Hogan slam Andre the Giant with my own eyes. They also had snacks and TV time popcorn or Jiffy Pop, all of which went hand in hand with the movies you rented. I can still distinctly remember the smell of this video store, and I'm sure you had your own version of Tropical Video. As reported in the New York Times, because of the 25,000 plus video stores and nearly double the outlets renting tapes in 1988, video rental had become a $6 billion industry. Convert that for today, and it's more like $15 billion. According to the Hamilton Spectator, in 1989, with 70,000 places to rent tapes, this was the peak of rental popularity. And what was reportedly the most rented movie in 1989? Big with Tom Hanks. But as the bigger chain stores like Blockbuster started taking over, it pushed the smaller independent video stores to the side. This is pretty interesting when you consider how years later, Netflix, a company Blockbuster had a chance to own, would eventually push the video store giant to the side. Even though it was only three years old, Blockbuster was buying up some of its competition with the goal of becoming the Walmart or McDonald's of video rental. By 1988, they already had around 400 locations and were the nation's biggest video store chain. Going into the 90s, Blockbuster opened their 1,000th store. By 1992, there were 2,800 stores in multiple countries. This would soon surge to about 9,000 stores. These huge commercial video rental stores just had too many movies, making it so hard for the little places to compete. The big name video stores could have upwards of 10,000 tapes, and they had so many copies of new releases that the independent stores just couldn't compete with them. And revenue-wise, it really was all about the new releases, as around 80% of rental sales came from about 20% of a store's tapes. Because the big stores had so much inventory, they could charge less per tape. More inventory also allowed people to keep their tapes for a few days at a time, as they had enough new releases to cover more people. And this was obviously a massive issue for small video stores. Even if they weren't rented a lot and not part of the 20% of titles, making up 80% of the revenue, every store still needed to have the classics. You had to have a copy of Gone with the Wind or Lawrence of Arabia. Smaller independent video stores prided themselves on being a place for true film lovers, and that meant having not only older classics, but unique foreign films. But these lesser rented titles took up valuable retail shelf space. For the independents, they just didn't have the room to cover everything. The big name video stores could have at least a copy or two of classic, lesser rented titles, but then have at least 50-plus copies of a new release like Beetlejuice. This was tough for the smaller stores. 
They didn't want to be cookie cutter, but if they wanted to stay open, it meant they may have to remove that copy of Rochelle Rochelle to put RoboCop in its place. As we move into the 90s and beyond, the smaller independent stores were hanging in there, but not for too much longer. The big places like Blockbuster were just too dominant. According to Business Insider, at its peak, Blockbuster was making $800 million a year just in late fees. But technology was changing. As the VHS gave way to the DVD, at least we still had a place to rent them and our Friday night entertainment sorted. Even if Blockbuster was our only movie rental option, at least they weren't going anywhere, right? Video rental stores would always be a thing, wouldn't they? There couldn't possibly be anything that would come along and change the way we consumed entertainment. We all know how this story ends, but today it's about looking back on a unique time in media and a true golden age of video stores. How different might the world of entertainment look today if the Betamax case had not gone the way of Sony and the VCR was actually banned? What if Mr. Rogers hadn't testified? We could be looking at a world where we may not have the VCR, then DVD and Blu-ray. We may never have got to the explosive growth of home video and video stores as we know it. There may have never been a blockbuster that wouldn't have given us a Netflix and then a whole era of streaming. Home entertainment would still exist, but it could have looked drastically different. The rapid rise of the video store in the 80s set in motion a new direction in entertainment. Our consumption of media went beyond just the theater. It was now in our homes. Whether you went to the video station, Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, Jumbo Video, Family Video, Tropical Video, or just your neighborhood place, video rental stores became hallowed ground. They are where we found our favorite movies of all time. It's where fandom was created and you began to truly appreciate and love certain films. You went back to rent the same movie week after week, each time discovering something new in it. As a new era of video games grew in the 80s, video rental stores were now our full entertainment hubs to get both movies and games. Before I ever owned a Nintendo, my friend and I would often pool our money together to rent an NES and Blades of Steel from our local video place. We spent so much on rentals that we could have just outright bought both the machine and the game. But it was all about the experience. As Blockbuster Video became a central hub in many of our towns, it was the place to see and be seen on a Friday night as everyone made a beeline for the new releases. And as of the time of this recording, there remains one location still open in Bend, Oregon. The last remaining Blockbuster Video in the world. Not to be outdone, here in Canada, there remain two jumbo video locations, both located in Ontario. One of which I visited not long ago. There are many more video game options and toys than existed back in the 80s, but to say you get hit by waves of nostalgia by walking in is a definite understatement. No matter what video store you went into growing up, when it was your week to choose the rental and with nothing to go by but the cover art and description on the back, would you come up big or choose a flop? There was always a risk, but again, it was all part of the experience. 
Pop culture seemed to be growing at an exponential rate during the 1980s, and the video rental store played a pivotal role in all of this. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you like this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. I mentioned some previous episodes for further listening, including the VHS versus beta format war and the history of Laserdisc, but there's plenty of other topics to keep you covered. This entire episode has been devoted to movies. And speaking of movies, if you're interested in supporting the show and getting access to bonus audio content, you can consider becoming a part of patreon.com where you can get access to the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast. That's where I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s movies. A few of those reviews are ones I've mentioned throughout this episode, including The Princess Bride, Robocop, and the top-rented movie of 1989, Big. If you want to learn more, you can head to patreon.com slash 80s, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash 80s, or click on the link in the description. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the Everything 80s podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so we can take more trips back in time. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. Music